Good morning, my name is Naomi and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And before I start anything in my life, I invite God into it. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I might better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. So I'm going to have the honor today to talk about the doctor's opinion. And to me, this is just, I mean, this is, this is more than just a book. This is a way of life for me. So I'm just going to start reading a little bit here. We have Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be in, interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have experience with the suffering of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specialized, specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gives Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Of course, we're talking about Dr. Silkworth. And I love, I love the history about this and I'm just, I'm, I'm just such a, a, a champ for this kind of history. And what I was told was Dr. Silkworth was a neurologist and he had an active, successful career. And then in 1929, they had the crash and he lost everything. And he had a good friend, Charles Towns. Charles Towns had a hospital and Dr. Silkworth went over there to work. And I love seeing how these pieces are put together to form where I am today. So in his different readings, so I'm gonna skip through this, I'm not reading the whole thing. In the course of his third treatment, he, re, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. Of course, we're talking about Bill Wilson. This was in the late 1934s. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his uh, conception to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they may do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I speak of myself as being recovered. I'm not cured. I have a mental twist that um, I have the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. That's never going to change. Never going to change. Further on, in this statement he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It didn't, it didn't satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defects. These things were true to some extent. In fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is incomplete. When I think of these words, I think of how, what the food did to me. And it did it to me, not for me. Because I was the real deal. And my life consisted of what could I get my next fix? And what could I, what could I do? What could I do and where could I get it? And how could I hide it? 
and made a person out of me that I wasn't. I'm basically an honest person. But when it came to the disease, all bets were off. More often than not, it's an imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. Different ones had said to me, um, what, is, what is the importance of, of being abstinent while you're going through the steps? And to me, it's like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work any other way. Your mind must be clear. It states it right here. The mind must be clear. So over on XXIII, the unselfishness of these men, as we have come to know then, the entire absence of profit motive and the community service. They believe in themselves and more so in the power which pulls chronic, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, alcoholics back from the gates of death. What was brought out to me while reading this is how in the different, different when the word power is used, uppercase or lowercase, of course, uppercase is like, this is the real deal. Over on the next page, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of the alcoholic on chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy and a phenomenon of craving is limited to the class of never, never occurs in the average tempered drinker. Well, just to stop there, I come from a normal family. Everybody's normal. They're normal eaters. They can pick up a piece or one donut or no, no. That was never the case with me. And I didn't realize until I came into this program and learned about this that I have this mental defect. I'm not a strange person. Well, yeah, maybe sometimes. But when it comes to food, that's it. Never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And the craziest part about it, when I first came into my first OA meeting, it was like I looked around. There was no scale. And there were skinny people there. I'm thinking, where did I land? And then they hand me a book about alcohol. <laughs> the most of my alcohol consumption in a year would be two pina coladas. And if I like food the way I like alcohol, I would weigh 100 pounds rather than close to 300 pounds. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message we came with can interest and hold the alcoholics must have depth and weight in nearly all cases. And then it goes down to say, grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. Uh, the other thing that was mentioned to me, and I love it, and I do read it this way, down at the bottom of XXIV, where it says, men and drink, men, I beg your pardon, men and women drink essentially because. They asked me to bring it into the singular. I drink essentially because I like the effect produced by alcohol, and in my case, food. The sensation is so allurous that while I admit it, it is injurious, I cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To me, my alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I am restless, irritable, and discontent until I can, again, experience Oh boy, the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which I see others take with impunity. After I have succumbed 
to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving, the phenomenon of craving develops. I pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerge, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over and over again until I get the psychic change. Oh my gosh, I would go to a party. Wouldn't want anybody to see how I ate. So I'd take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, looking like a real lady. Wrong. When I would get home, that would be it. I would sit and binge my head off. But here it says, a psychic change. And it's just amazing what this book says. On the other hand, and strange as it may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, that same person who seemed doomed had so many problems he despaired of every so ever solving and suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effect necessary being that required follow a few simple rules. Thankfully, those beautiful rules are our 12 steps. Down here at the bottom, which is so similar, the bottom of, XXI, of XXV, so similar to the bottom of XXIV. And then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. <coughs> and I can, I can see it. I knew it in my life. I mean, I would be so hung over. I'd have a good night with food. Well, yeah, at the time it was a good night with food. And the next day, I would be like comatose. I would be so comatose because I would be so hung over with the food. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomena of craving. This phenomena, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has, it has never been by any treatment with which any familiar permanent eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. You know, I once heard, I listen to Vision for You every day, and I once heard on there, and I love it, it's so true, that this person's bottom had a trap door. And I know for myself, as, as a little girl growing up, the, the volume of food, it was like I couldn't, I couldn't stop. And there was never, I wouldn't get filled. I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And that was the truth. And I had no idea until I came into this program. How are we doing time-wise? I don't know. It has to come up. Push, push it again to come up. Is that what it is? is it oh, you me? just pushed it back to 15. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I left my phone at home. I do apologize. And we're using someone else's phone that oh, was kind enough. 15, so you should be pretty. Okay. Um, so here we have, and the, with the doctor's opinion, what is the solution? Following the elimination of alcohol, accepted the plan outlined in this book, from a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance 
and contentment. You know, I read these words and I think of myself, and I just recently heard, because I often said of myself, um, I don't have an ego problem. My problem is the opposite. And because I, you know, grew up called, being called fat because I was heavy my whole life. My two older brothers are tall and thin. And um, I was always insulted, you know, from outside the house and inside the house. And it was, um, but I, I didn't understand what was going on. The rest of the family are normal eaters. I'm not a normal eater. I never will be. But thank you, God. That's not the case today. And as of July 25th, 2011, I became abstinent. I put down my poison foods and I picked up this program. I worked the steps. And the beautiful, the beautiful part of this is it started with, I, my first sponsor had me reading five pages of the big book and write a paragraph. That's how she took me through the steps. Thankfully, this one sponsor that went out but before she did, she nagged me to listen to Vision for You. And I picked up a sponsor, and we worked the steps in sequential order. And it has changed my life. And I do not have this, this mental, this mental defect will never leave me. And I'm, I'm a free woman. I can come and go as I please because of this book, because of, uh, my day starts with praying and meditating and because I get on phone meetings and I sponsor and I have a sponsor and it just, um, it's a miracle. It's just an absolute miracle how this program has transformed my life. And, and it's so funny because each time I go through the book with a new sponsee, I find something new. It never gets old. It never gets old. I don't want it to get old. I'm 71 years young. I'm doing stuff now that I couldn't do in my 50s and 60s. And this program has transformed my life. And it's something that, you know, it's there for everyone. And the beautiful part of it is just for today, because I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow. But just for today, I know I can go to this book. And this, this phenomenon of craving, that's, that's not going to change. The manifestation of the allergy, that's not going to change. That's the way I'm wired. It's like I'm not going to wake up one morning and be six foot. I mean, I can't even say I'm five foot anymore. My daughters correct me. Mom, you're 4'11". Okay, fine. But thank God I go in stores and there are tall people that, that will help me. Okay, with that, we're going to transfer it over to Martha. Um, I'm Martha Z, I'm compulsive overeater, living in recovery. I'm really happy to be with all of you. So I am, and happy to share my experience, strength, and hope with all of you. So um, I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something with Bill's story. And then um, I'm going to talk about my first step one experience, and then Naomi's going to talk about her step one experience, and then I'm going to fin finish up with talking about more about alcoholism. So we're going to be on page eight, and um, first two paragraphs. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass. <laughs> okay, should I? So how do I get it to start again? I'm sorry. I apologize. I left my phone at home, so it's. <clears throat> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> 
Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I'd met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to find, call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. And in that, that first paragraph, he talks about the bitter morass of self-pity. And it makes me think about the, um, in step eight in the AA 12 and 12, there's a part where it says, what happens when we wallow in depression, self-pity oozing from every pore, and inflict this upon those about us? And I can honestly say that was me with my family of origin especially. I uh, created so much harm. Um, and then he talks about his step one is when he says alcohol was my master and food was my complete master. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I couldn't stop doing what I didn't want to do. I was in complete bondage to it. And then that next paragraph, I could have written this paragraph. It's so what happened to me, but I'll get to that a little bit later. But he talks about how dark it is before the dawn and, um, and that he was soon to be catapulted into a fourth dimension. And I like to think about that as the spiritual dimension. And then he says, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. And I can honestly say that's exactly what happened to me. I, you know, I went from being in complete bondage to food to being free and um, to, I hate it when people say I have a life beyond my wildest dreams, but you know, to really have a life and to have a life of meaning and purpose. So um, I spent, 19 years in my disease, um, I, I, st I was, as a child, I was um, what my brother called pleasingly plump, so 10 to 15 pounds overweight. So when I was 15 years old, a boyfriend broke up with me, and I decided it was because I was too fat. So I went on my first diet, and I lost the weight very shortly, I mean, it was only a couple months, and I got down to my goal, and then I never wanted to be fat again. So I did what I called was being careful. So I ended up getting down to 87 pounds. That was not my intent. I just didn't want to be fat again. And um, created a lot of fear and tension in my family of origin, especially with my mom. So I agreed that I was going to gain weight back. And so I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I can eat whatever I want. So I proceeded. I was a Girl Scout. It was Girl Scout cookie time. I proceeded to eat boxes and boxes of boxes of cookies. And in a one-month period, I had gained the 20 pounds that I needed to gain. And, um, but I do, I think I had the predisposition because I have lots of alcoholism in my family. And I think I somehow, I, I just went beyond that tolerance point. So I was ready to stop, but I had kind of turned on this disease. So I was able, when I was in high school, able to eat, well, a couple days about three days and then the fourth day I binged and it was like that in the beginning but this is a progressive disease and it got worse over time it totally got worse over time so 
that was my first um, seven years. And so 12 years, the last 12 years I found OA. And I, I saw this article in, in the, um, it was the Bolton then from near Philadelphia. And um, it, it had um, Tradition 5, and it said the only requirement for mem- uh, Tradition 3, the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. And I was like, I, I, I was overweight, but I knew that it was the way I ate. I didn't, I didn't like the way I ate. It made my life so crazy. So anyway, so I thought I'm going, and I spent my first 12 years in OA struggling. I, I knew that the steps had something to do with it, and I was valiantly trying to work them while I was still eating. Um, <laughs> I, I want to say that doesn't work well. That's my experience. Um, <laughs> I was, let me say I was not stably abstinent. I mean, I wasn't eating a candy bar as I was writing my fourth step, but I <laughs> say, so I, I did six AWOL step study programs with Way of Life. I led two of them, and I, I am actually very ashamed to say that I was not stably abstinent when I was doing that. And um, anyway, so I did not have what you would describe an effective spiritual experience for sure. And so um, anyway, I, but I was, I can say the one thing from my OA experience. I started OA in January of 1977, and I never left. And I knew from the time I came in that it was the right answer. And I kind of knew that one day something was going to happen, and I really thought that it wouldn't happen if I wasn't there. So that, that much I can say for myself. I did not give up on it, and I just kept trying all the time. So anyway, so I'm going to fast forward. Now it's December of 1988, and... Um, but meanwhile, like, I had, I had been in OA a year and a half when I got married. I had, I had two children. So I called uh, Starting Point, which I'm sure most of you guys know about Starting Point Recovery Center in South Jersey. And I talked to the eating disorders person, and I said, people, people had started to go to treatment. They were coming back, and they were talking about it. And uh, my best friend and I, we used to tease, we're like, sure, we'll go to treatment for six weeks with our, we, she had three children, I had two, you know, like, sure, we're going to do that. So anyway, I called her, and, and she said, you've been in OA for 12 years, when are you going to put the food down and leave it down? I was like, well, no, you don't understand, like, isn't there someplace shorter or closer? Like, I have these, my, my daughters were four and six. And she's like, you've got this chronic disease, you have to take care of it. And I, I... I, before that, I really thought I was a high-bottom case, but I really started to feel like I was going to lose everything. So Christmas comes and goes, and every once in a while, I'd get a week in, and then I'd think I didn't need help anymore. And mm-hmm. Anyway, so now, I'm, now it's February 3rd, and I, um, I called the, the treatment center. It's a Friday afternoon, and um, so I thought I would hear from them on Monday morning. And um, so... I call the treatment center, and they're, they're going to check my insurance to get back to me. So Saturday morning I, I was my absolute bottom. I, I, my, Saturday was my, my um, normal activity. I would get up and do the food shopping super early at, while my husband and daughters were still sleeping. <clears throat> and I came back, and, and um, I broke one of my rules, which was you never go back to bed. I am in bed. My I don't know why. I, I don't. I don't even know how this happened. But my husband's in bed, and my daughters are in bed with me, and 
the tears are streaming down my face and my four-year-old is wiping the tears from my face saying mommy's sad and I'm thinking this cannot keep happening I this can't happen they leave <laughs> they leave and um, I get down on my knees and I just say God you know like I don't care it doesn't have to be this you know, just please help me to get the help I need. And if I get a week in there and I think that I don't need it anymore, help me to go anyway. So the phone rings, it's Saturday morning. The treatment center called and they said, they said I could come. So I'm set to go on February 15th. This is 1989. And um, February 15th comes and it is Bill's story. It was, it was, pouring rain and the sky was black totally black and i and it was just like that like how dark it is before the dawn like i did not know that everything was going to change in my life so um anyway i go my father and my brother come to pick me up they are both functional alcoholics they come to pick me up my older daughter is sobbing we go to the airport we are they took me to the gate because they could then and I, <laughs> they were with me at the gate, and I felt like the jail door was closing on me. And I thought, what is wrong with this picture? I'm the wellest person in the family, and I'm going for treatment. <laughs> and it, today, it does not, it, do, it doesn't amaze me at all, because I'm thinking I'm the only person in the family that wasn't in total denial, you know? Really, that's, and it is truly the case today in my family. So I went, and I went with the willingness that I was going to do whatever they told me to do. I was so ready to go. And um, I was, I had been, like, I, page 48 in the big book talks about how the disease beat you into a state of reasonableness. I, I would have done anything if they told me to stand on my head for six hours in the corner. I would have done it. I didn't care. And so I got up every morning, and I prayed that... Um, you know, I left my husband and my daughters in, in God's hands, and I just prayed for the willingness to do whatever I needed to recover. And, um, and I, I did it. I, there were mornings when I was so tired, I thought, there's no way I could do this. And I, I just kept doing whatever anybody told me to do. And I thought, your way got you here. You know, it's time to just say, yes, whatever you say, I'll do it. I, I did it. And it was, it was really hard to be there. It was very hard to be there. And so, um, anyway, I wanted to say, I still get up every day and pray for the willingness to do whatever I need to do to recover today. So um, they tell me that at, at the end, they're doing aftercare, and they, they, they're telling me that I have to do 90 meetings in 90 days. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, I've just left these little girls for all this time. Like, how am I going to do this? And we didn't have any phone meetings then, mm -hmm. and we barely had any OA meetings then. So I, you know, but I kept praying for the willingness, and um, I went to Al-Anon meetings, and I went to AA meetings, and my, my older daughter was in first grade, and my other one was in nursery school a few many mornings a week, and I, um, so I, I went, I remember going to this one Al-Anon meeting, it was a step one meeting, and the guy says, now remember, I thought I was a high bottom person, the guy says, you know, I didn't lose my wife, or my job, or my kids, or my house, or my car. I lost myself mm. and I was just like huh um, I didn't know who I was 
I didn't know what I thought about anything. I didn't know how I felt about anything. I was completely lost. And I thought, God, like, what could be more worse than that? You know what I mean? I had completely lost myself. So anyway, that was very eye-opening. I needed that. So today, um, I've been living in recovery by the grace of God for 29 and three quarters years. Mm. I can't believe it is. It is a complete miracle. And um, they talk about how recovery is at the intersection of your willingness and God's grace. And um, that was exactly what it was for me. And um, and a lot of desperation. I was really there. The desperation was there. So, um, and the part where Bill says I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. I, that's my story, you know. So, I don't think treatment's the answer. I think, I think when you're ready, you're ready. Yeah, I was ready. Um, it was definitely the hardest thing I ever did in my life, and it was the best thing I ever did in my life. And, um, just like the disease affects the family in a really negative way, so the recovery um, affects the family in a very positive way. So my daughters are now 34 and 36, and um, I looked at them a while back, and I, I thought, you know what, they'd be completely different people if they were raised by me and my disease. And I almost can't say how grateful I am, and I, I actually have the best possible relations with everybody in my life. And, um, but I, I came to OA, I was 55 pounds heavier. I came to OA because I wanted to get thin. And, um, but I got this relationship with a higher power that helps me with everything in my life. And for that, I'm truly grateful. And I don't, I don't use food to manage my life. When I went, I, I thought, I didn't think that I could live one day. Without, I needed food to manage my life. I didn't think it was possible to do it without. So I'm just here to say that I, I actually found this higher power to help me manage my life. And, um, and that doesn't mean everything's easy, it's not. But food doesn't come in as a way to manage it anymore. And there can be no greater miracle than that one. So, your turn. Okay, I'm gonna pass some funnies around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so I'm going to share a little bit about me and how God had done for me what he could not do for himself. Of course, we're talking about Bill. And then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. And then over on the next page, it's only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. <laughs> nothing more. <laughs> nothing. You're so gracious. Thank you Thank so much. You don't have to reset. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Nothing more was required. Passing pictures around of myself is the way I look, whether my hair color was blonde or brown or red, whatever. <laughs> From the neck down, it was always the same. And um, I have to say, I had a, um, a very active daycare business in my home for 25 years, and when I saw my top weight and the bariatric surgery came into, into effect, I chose to, um, I thought about having the bariatric surgery. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I could not have the recoup time of the two weeks to take off from my business because I was a sole proprietor of six little dumplings, and I was responsible for them. 
But I, I opt for the, uh, the lap band surgery. And the lap band is something like putting a belt around the top of your stomach. And the doctor would give, and then it's attached to this cord thing, it's called a port that looks like a little spool of thread. And the doctor injects a fluid and it goes through the tube and it tightens the belt, so to speak, around the top of your stomach. And it was wonderful in the beginning because I would only be able to have like one or two you know, bites of food. And um, I quickly lost 70 pounds. But you see, I'm a, I'm a food addict, and because of that, I was able to find 35 pounds of that. After four pounds of gain, after gaining four pounds, the doctor uh, was very insulting to me. And he ordered an upper GI to make sure that the band didn't slip, which it didn't. And um, I couldn't go back to him because he humiliated me, and I left, his, I left his office crying because I knew I was a loser. There was just no way of getting around it. And so 35 pounds, there was no way. Thank you, God. Um, I had an Ebby come to my home one day. It was a neighbor. And I saw how she released so much weight. And I said, how did you do it? And she said, Overeaters Anonymous. Needless to say, by this time in my life, I had tried everything. I mean everything. I even, back in, I think, the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, there was a doctor out in Broomall, not too far from where I live in Upper Darby, that had me on 500 calories a day. <laughs> the liquid protein diet, that's what it was. So it was everything. And um, that, that, needless to say, did not work. And then, so with the lap band and gaining this weight, there was no way I could go back to him. And I thought, I am screwed. And I sat down and I called every bariatric center from Upper Darby to North Jersey. No one would touch me. And I thought, this is great. I have this thing in me and I'm going over 500 pounds. And thank you, God, I was introduced to Overeaters Anonymous. And I went to my first meeting. And like I said, I went in there and I was like, where's the scale? And what are skinny people doing here? And then they hand me a book about alcohol. And I'm thinking, this is nuts. But then I sat through the meeting, and it's like when I got out in my car, I thought, how do these people know what I do with food? No one was around. I'm a good sneak eater. And my journey started, and I was a program from February until July when I hit my bottom. And thank you, God, it was literally, literally hitting my bottom. My sister was going to take us down to Atlantic City. I had gained this weight back, and the bathing suit from the previous year did not fit. And I was in this dressing room, and I put my, I put my glasses down on the bench. And I was so disgusted and so full of self-hatred, I sat down and smashed my glasses. And they're invisible bifocals. So I was out with my sister. We were going to go to dinner. I could, I could um, I'm farsighted, so I was, I was okay to see to drive the car, but we're sitting at the, at the restaurant, and she had to read the menu because I could see the pictures, but I couldn't read it. And so um, I thought, you know what, I have to get serious with this. And I, I found a sponsor, and we worked through the steps, and my life was changing. Little by little, I was releasing the weight. And in so many different ways, my life was changing. And it was a, a long period of time since I had seen this doctor and I mean, I would drive past the hospital where he worked on a weekend and cringe because of the trauma that he set into my brain. And so finally I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go get this thing checked out and see what it is. I knew that God and I were working together, 
But just as a curiosity, I wanted to see what was going on with the band. I went over to the doctor, and he saw, I mean, I could still take off like another 15 or 20 pounds whenever God wants to take it from my body. And so the doctor gave me the time to tell him what he did to me. And as people that know me, I am not shy on words. So I sat there, and he gave me the time. This blew my mind. And I told him how he sent me from his office crying and how it was just a small amount of weight that I had gained, only four pounds. And he said to me, he said, um, he apologized. Yep, he apologized. And I was so thankful. That's all I needed. And he said, if you want to come back and get the band filled, you know, we could take care of it. And I said, oh, let me think about it. And I left there. And I thought, God, if I would go back and get this band filled, I would be like slapping you in the face. Because you are doing something in my life I've never, ever been able to do. And I was on every imaginable. I even tried baby food. That didn't work. I've tried everything. And it was God. It's God who's doing this. Now, I too, this too is a beaten down thing beyond my wildest dreams. Not that I have anything against Riverside or anything like that. My, my alliance is definitely in this big book and all the word that's in here. But I'm doing things and things around me don't stop. My little precious granddaughter was born in 2014, in April, and in May, my husband, who had never had a cold, had an aneurysm in the aorta, in the abdomen, and they call that the widow maker, and God spared him. And I mean, like ever since then, he's just been pulling some crap every year. Like one, one year he decided, he was okay, but the car, our second car was totaled, but he was okay, that's fine. And no matter what it is, no matter what happens, it's like the food is never, we get through one year all the way to Christmas Day. Nothing happens with my husband. Thank you, God. Christmas Day, he has pains in his stomach. We thought we were hoping it was gallbladder or gallstones. We take him back to the hospital <clears throat> where they repair the aneurysm. He had a leak. It was Christmas Day. We had to rush him down to the University of Penn Hospital for surgery. And, you know, it's, um, they had a cafeteria there and there was all kinds of food, but there was, it wasn't my food. And I didn't, I didn't indulge in any of it. And then last year, um, last year in the middle of the afternoon, he comes walking up the back driveway. It's like, all right, now, <laughs> now what? walks up the back driveway where he worked for 25 years they closed like I said we're 70 years young and you know where do you start over and so um, that did not work but thankfully there was a place nearby that did electronic work and he put he actually physically took an application and he got the job and it just um, I mean regardless of what it is because life doesn't stop just because just because I'm on a food program or because I don't want it to be. It's not my choice. It's thy will be done, not mine. And living this book every day, being on phone meetings, sponsoring, having a sponsor is the only way I can survive this. And as crazy as it may seem, and this is true, and I'm not tempting fate, I do cake decorating. God gave me the gift right after my Renee was born. And I, you know, I was never a finger licker. It's just a creative, it's only like a palette for me. Many times I've gone to places with a cake in one hand because people really enjoy it, and my abstinent food in the other. And it just, 
it's just a work of art. There's nothing more to it. I get in there after all the work for the prep, the decorating, and I usually end up cutting it off, so I just pop off my rings and I cut it up and I do what I have to. It brings pleasure to other people. And this is a gift that God has given to me. I don't have them around the house. And whatever it is, I'm free. I'm free. I can go anywhere. I could walk past um, the Wawa's. They would go broke waiting for me to buy their hoagies and Doritos, which I did every single day. You know, they would, they would go broke. And that's okay. They're thriving. I don't drink coffee. So I have no reason to go in there. But I cannot say it enough that this program has literally saved my life. I, at my top weight, those pictures that came around, they were like 270, 280. I couldn't walk three blocks. Up to this point with my daughter, Rebecca, I've done a 5K walk and I've done a 10K walk. And it is just unbelievable. And I have the Fitbit and I usually get out two or three times during the week and I will go walk and I get my 10,000 steps. And to me, I don't walk as fast as my daughters, but that's okay because they're half my age. And that's okay. But just the idea of me getting out, I don't use the earbuds, I talk to God. And it's just, it's just amazing. It's just amazing. And life does not stop. There's always some kind of crazy. I had a crazy with my daughter last night, a situation. And it really had me very disturbed. And I'm thinking, great, this is just what I need. Here I am trying to get myself all psyched up for tomorrow. But you know what? Great. This is just what I need. Being with my OA family, being here, knowing that there's a God. And thank you. I retired that years ago. I am not God. I am not God. I am just sitting back and praying and waiting to see what he's going to do. My daughter, unfortunately, got on the phone with someone. And um, out of loneliness, she's having some difficulties with her husband, and this person swindled her out of $2,000. And I just sat there like, oh, my. And, I mean, when she left, I cried because she is my daughter. And it's like, nope, there's nothing I can do. And I'm praying, and she's working with the bank. And But it was like just last night, and here I had to do this today. And my heart was just bleeding last night. And I thought, you know what? No. I'm going to be calm. And, and even this morning, this came about so, you know, it was going to do this, it was going to do that, and all of a sudden, here we are. So I know, without a shadow of a doubt, when God is involved, and God is so involved with my life, there's no coincidence. There's no coincidence. And there's no coincidence that no matter what these things is, there's nothing, there's no, there's no food that's going to change it. And I am so thankful and so grateful to this program for allowing us to do service today. I thank you very much because I really needed it this morning. And this book, this wonderful book about alcohol, and I never had a, I never had a problem with drinking. It just wasn't, it wasn't my thing. And um, I thank you, God, that I'm here and I'm alive. And I passed to Martha. Thank you, Naomi. You're welcome. And Naomi, I'm very grateful for Naomi because the person that I was gonna do it with got really sick. And Naomi just jumped right in. So last night you found out. Yesterday. So God very grateful good. for that. Okay, so we're going to do more about alcoholism and um, on page 30. And so this chapter, I, I have it written at the top of it, um, more truth about alcoholism. So this whole chapter is warning. So it's mainly about people who believe the lie that they could drink when they were sober. 
And this is the second half of step one on manageability, the mind and the mental obsession. So Naomi talked about the first half of step one with the doctor's opinion. So, so on page 30, it talks about no person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. I was certainly bodily and mentally different. I, I absolutely have the allergy of the body. I, certain substances, sugar and flour specifically. Um, once I get them in my body, I cannot stop. That phenomenon of craving is there. I have to have more. I cannot eat two cookies. I can eat two boxes of cookies and then some. Um, absolutely the, the physical allergy. Mentally, I've got this mental obsession. I had this mental obsession 24-7. I was either thinking about having it, not having it, um, eating it, recovering from eating it um, every second. So, um, and, and, and the thought it would say to me, okay, you might have rinsed your brains out last night, but today you're just going to be fine. You'll just be able to have a little bit of it. So then the next part of this paragraph talks about the idea that someday he will control and enjoy his, I'm going to say eating, because that's what we're talking about, is the great obsession of every abnormal compulsive reader. So it makes me think about the story, it's on 334, that's called Crossing the River of Denial. And she talks about when she controlled it, the, the alcohol, she didn't enjoy it. And when she enjoyed it, she was totally out of control. Mm -hmm. um, then it talks about how we have to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were compulsive overeaters. This is the first step in recovery. So that's, that is our first step as well. We admit we're powerless over food. We have to fully concede. The delusion that we're like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. I have utterly destroyed, smashed. Um, and in this, so in this paragraph, next paragraph, it has the word control four different times. And I, you know, I really, attempted valiantly to control this thing. I, and the more I tried to control it, the more out of control I was. And then it says, so um, let's see. Oh, at the end of the paragraph. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. So that speaks to the progressive nature of the disease. So then next page, it talks about here are some of the methods we've tried. So when I was in treatment, they said one of our insights assignments was that we had to write 25 ways that we tried to control food. So I'm just going to tell you some of them. Um, never having it in the house. That looked like um, the car drove itself at 7 a.m. in the morning. I would have run over anybody to the store. Um, locking up the food or the money. Um, I had this metal cabinet. I, would, I literally took the cabinet, bent the door, and reached in and pulled the food out. Um, locking up the money, I wrote blank checks. Um, not eating sugar, uh, endless sugarless cookies, and popcorn, I would pop like 35 cups of it and put it in a large bowl. Um, not eating at work. Uh, skipping breakfast, that was probably the thing that I did that was the work the least. When I was in college, I decided that I was just going to eat two meals. So when I got into the cafeteria, the desserts were first in line. So I would take one dessert, eat it in the line, and take three others. So that was absolutely not working either. Um, delaying eating as long as possible so that I could only 
binge a certain amount of time in the day. Um, joining the gym or fitness salon, reading inspirational books, going to counseling. The gym, I actually never got there because I was too embarrassed to go, you know, because I couldn't be with all those other people. Or the fitness salon, forget it. I couldn't work out with those little people anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, so at the end of the page 31, it talks about um, diagnosing yourself and trying some controlled eating, I'm going to say. So to me, that would be like, okay, um, I want you to eat two cookies every day for the next 30 days. I couldn't do that for one day, much less I didn't need to do any, um, uh, I didn't need to do any diagnosis. I already <laughs> knew what the answer was. So, okay. So it starts with 32, starts with a man of 30. And he's, he's very ambitious, but he knows that he's not going to get anywhere if he keeps because his drinking was pretty out of control. So he decides that he's not going to touch a drop until he's really successful. So he's really successful. He has been dry for 25 years. And so he thinks that this long period of sobriety has qualified him to drink like a normal person again. So, so we think if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could therefore drink normally. And so the book says, it. Uh, one of our AA teachers, our Big book teachers all says that this is this is a quote from uh, Peabody's Common Sense of Drinking: "Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic." Um, sir, us once a compulsive overeater, always a compulsive overeater. Um, so, uh, so if we're planning to stop eating compulsively, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to our binge foods. Lurking, I love it. Hidden, no lurking notion. It's never gonna come back. We're never going to be able to eat these things again. It's not like, I'm going to not have it today, but tomorrow I can have it. Like, no thought of that. Okay, so then it says, whether such a person can quit, this is on 34, um, second paragraph. Whether such a person can quit on a non-spiritual basis depends on the extent to which he's already lost the power to choose whether he'll drink or not, whether we will eat or not. Um, I had completely lost the power of choice. I like to say that food is my drug of no choice. No choice. Um, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. I had the necessity. I was having health issues. I had the wish. First of all, I didn't want to be fat. But I also didn't. My life was so crazy when I ate like that. Like, I... I really wanted to stop that. I, I just, I wished it, but that was not getting me anywhere. Um, so, so chapter three gives examples of, of the, that describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse. Because it says, uh, let's see, top of 35. We shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. So the word crux means the most important point. So it starts with Jim. Jim's a low bottom case. And um, he, gets, he gets into contact with the AA people and they, they kind of you know, tell him steps one, two. And I, I figure he's done steps one, two, and three, but talks about how he fails to enlarge his spiritual life. So the way I see it is he has got this crazy idea that it's okay to mix whiskey with milk. And if he, if he would have done the rest of the steps, they would have straightened out that mental obsession, and he would have said, oh, wait a minute, 
this is crazy. You know, there's no way this is going to work. But he thinks, oh, yeah. And it works so well that he actually has another glass of milk and puts more whiskey in it. So it's definitely uh, not working. So anyway, the, the whole point of that was he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And um, did his found reasoning fail to hold him in check? Uh, it says the insane idea won out. And a lot of times we hear in the program, we talk about insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And I was listening to this meeting, and I think the person had it a lot clearer. She said, insanity is doing the same thing and knowing what's going to happen and doing it anyway. That was me. That was completely, I knew what was going to happen, and I did it anyway. Um, Anyway, let's see. So then we get the jaywalker. The jaywalker is me just with food. And I love the part, it's on top of 38, it says, you would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. And I have written over the top of that sentence, he's not. Mm-hmm. So he, he's not, so he can't cut it out. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol's been involved, we've been strangely insane. Strong language, but isn't it true? Yeah, I did not like the inference in step two that I was insane and I needed to be restored to sanity. But I, not only was I insane where the food wasn't concerned, I, I must admit that I was insane in all other areas too. So um, then, then we get to the part on 39, it says absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And we talk about Fred. Now Fred's a high bottom case. Things were going well for him. And he also gets this thought that, you know, that he can, it would be nice to have a couple cocktails with dinner. So, um, um, okay. So he, he, well, let's see, before that, he gets in, he's in the hospital, they work with him, and um, he didn't even, he hadn't even taken step one. He was like, you know, I hear what you're saying, but, you know, um, I've got this plan, you know, self-knowledge will fix it, you know, willpower and keeping on guard, that's all I need. And anyway, but they're telling him, like, he's got this alcoholic mind, and the time will come, you know, when he wants to drink again, so that's what happens. So Fred says, it meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window, and I thought, Okay, what are they? Self-sufficiency, having to be right, thinking that it's my job to fix everything. Um, Anyway, that, figuring it out. And um, so this program talks about how we need to set aside everything we think we know. And I'm so grateful that I don't have to fix everything and I don't have all the answers. I'm really happy to say, you know what? I don't know. Or it's okay if you don't know. You know, like... My husband was saying something to me last night. I said, that's fine. I already said it was okay because he was starting to get ramped up. And I was like, I said it was fine. You know, like, anyway, so he, let's see. I just need to finish this up. He says, um, quite as important was the, the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. And he says, I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. And I, I always, like in the morning, I always um, thank God for the dignity of abstaining yesterday and the privilege of abstaining today. Mm-hmm. And um, it's true. I mean, and sometimes things are hard, but the one thing I know is that I can go to bed with dignity because 
whatever I'm dealing with, I'm not using food to work it out. And that is totally miraculous. So talks about being 100% hopeless apart from divine help and that his defense must come from a higher power. And I think that that's the most perfect segue into step two because step two is not having this perfect knowledge of what your higher power can be. Step two is about the need for a higher power and that we're completely powerless and that we need something that's greater than ourselves that'll help us. And thank you. Let me share.